So today's class is about matzah. Yesterday we had a class about matzah. Yesterday we said that matzah is bittel. Bittel meaning it has no taste, it has no expansiveness, right? The idea is that it's not about something resonating, it's not about growing to appreciate it, it's about accepting it for what it truly is, right? And the idea is bittel to Hashem. Um, And today we're going to talk about two kinds of matzah. Now, Yesterday, I, I touched on the examples of the, the idea of bittel being like the connection a small child has with their parents. Um, and we're going to come back to that analogy, hopefully later on in the class. But for now, I want to um, make some observations about matzah as it shows up in the Torah and as it features in the Pesach Seder. And we're going to see that matzah is described in two different ways, and then we're going to use that as a model to understand two different notions of bittel and their relationship. Um, a small but important caveat, this is a major topic in Chassidus that has many, many nuances. We are going to deal with the topic from 30,000 feet in the air, meaning very broadly and generally. So I'm going to oversimplify many things that if you actually start learning more Hasidic discourses, you will see are much more nuanced and complicated than I'm making them out to be. Um, and that's probably always true in classes like this, but I think it's especially important to say because I'm intentionally oversimplifying many, many things to get the main point across. Yes, you raised your hand. Yeah, I did. Um, so I listened to this year yesterday, so I could be caught up, and I had a question about um, that analogy with the kid and the father. Mm-hmm. Were you like referring to the Pshuta? Like a very simple, just... That is a Pshuta, yes. Okay. But the, the, I'm going to come back to what we mean by Munapshut, like what are we trying to get at? Because describing something and then giving it a name can often be misleading because you're not you're sure what aspect of it are we, we focusing on. Okay. Um, you could imagine the confusion of a child who's always shown a red circle and told them that this is a circle and, all they, and they start thinking that the color red is circle because the person isn't pointed out that we're talking about the shape and not the color. Right, that would be confusing to somebody, right? Which is why when you're teaching children shapes, you show them the same shape in many colors and many sizes, so they start to realize the common thing is circle is the shape. Right? Similarly, we need to go back to that analogy and clear exactly what we're talking about. What is the bit what is the movement? Yeah, we'll do that later in the class. Okay. Hopefully. No guarantees. Never know what could happen. So... One of the things that it says about matzah is that the reason why we eat matzah on Pesach, it says this in the Haggadah, is because the dough of our ancestors did not have the opportunity to rise before Hashem um, revealed himself and redeemed them. So that means that the matzah that we are eating is connected with the fact that Hashem redeemed the Jewish people and the result of that redemption was there was not the opportunity for the dough to leaven. Now, when did Hashem reveal himself or redeem the Jewish people? Does anyone know? I want exactly. Midnight on the 15th of Nisan. Exactly at midnight. Which is impossible because exactly at midnight is not a duration of time, but one of the profound miracles. Think about it. Yeah. Right? Midnight is not, an, is not a span of time. Midnight is simply a demarcation between the end of one time and the beginning of another. It's not a, nothing can happen at midnight. It can happen starting at midnight, ending at midnight, a little bit before and a little bit after midnight, but something can't take place during midnight because it's not a span of time. But God being God, that doesn't bother him. Why is that impossible? It's not like one second? It's either 11.59 or 12, 12.01, there's not like a span of time. How long is midnight? Not a long time, but also... Things happen in durations of time. Even things that happen really, 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 really fast, they take an amount of time for them to occur. But before midnight, the Jews were enslaved, and then after midnight, they were free. That's why it's a... It makes sense. But the idea that something happens 
In other words, if that's exactly the point, if you're contrasting from before and after, and you say, well, before it was this and after that, that makes perfect sense. But you're trying to think, okay, well, what happened at that instant? You can't think of anything happening during an instant. So it's just like, poof, the Jews are redeemed. Right? You, I don't know, can you just like poof things from they used to be this and now they're that without any process occurring? You can't do that. I can't do that. It's not a natural phenomenon. Okay. Um, so Shem reveals himself and poof, the Jews are redeemed. They didn't actually leave Egypt till the next morning for reasons unrelated to the purpose of this class. Okay? Well, actually the next midday. They left at midnight. Midday. Twelve hours later. Okay. Um, when they were in Egypt, they were commanded to eat matzah. When were they commanded to eat matzah? When the night of the 15th, before midnight, there was a mitzvah to offer the Korban Pesach, the Paschal offering. And the Paschal offering is to be eaten together with matzah and mar. So they had a commandment to eat matzah. It was the night of the 15th or the 14th? The night of the... Remember, Jewish nights go before the day. The night after the 14th. Okay. The night leading into the 15th, which is called the night of the 15th. Right. Just remember, Friday night in English is not the same thing as Lel Shishi. Lel Shishi is Thursday night. It's confusing. Nights go first. Okay, so now the so that's already an inconsistency there because in the in the Seder, and actually there's even a verse in the Chumash that describes the eating of matzah in conjunction with the fact that they did not have the opportunity to rise after Hashem redeemed us. That doesn't fit with the idea that the Jewish people were commanded to eat matzah even before they were redeemed. In fact, when we eat matzah nowadays, when are we required to eat the matzah? Does anyone know? Before midnight. The mitzvah of matzah must be done before halachic midnight. There is some discussion about the afikom and the last matzah. Does that have to be done before midnight? But the actual mitzvah of eating matzah, the first morsel of matzah, the kezayas of matzah, one must eat before midnight. Halachic midnight. What time is halachic midnight? Anyone know? 10.30. What? 10.30. Yeah, here it's, I think, around 12.40-ish. Plus or minus. I don't know the exact time. Okay. So that's inconsistent, right? Okay, now let's look at the fact that the, that the matzah, matzah is not chametz, obviously. Right? It's not leavened. Um, the Torah commanded the Jewish people in Egypt to make sure that the matzah, the dough, did not become chametz. It was an explicit command. Guard the matzahs, meaning guarding them from becoming chametz, right? Implying that they, if without the special effort of the Jewish people, that dough would have become chametz, would have leavened. And yet we also have this idea that the, the, the reason was matzah was didn't have the opportunity to rise. That's also inconsistent. Okay, so number one, when exactly were they were, when exactly were they eating matzah that we're now making a big deal about eating matzah? Was it prior to leaving Egypt, or prior to being redeemed, to be more accurate, or after they were redeemed? Okay, the second thing is, are they eating matzah because they didn't have the opportunity to become chametz, or because they commanded them to eat matzah? And was it not chametz because it simply didn't have the opportunity to become chametz, or they had to put special effort into making sure it's not chametz? So you see, these descriptions of matzah are inconsistent with each other. So how many differences have I pointed out between the, the matzah? How many? <coughs> I would say there's really three. When were they eating matzah? Before they were redeemed or after they were redeemed? Why were they eating matzah? They were commanded to, or they just didn't have any chametz because there was no opportunity to do chametz. And why was it not chametz? Was it just it didn't have the opportunity to become chametz, or were they actually had to take special a- action to ensure that it wasn't chametz. When were they eating matzah? Why were they eating matzah? And why, were and they why wasn't it chametz? The thing that's confusing is that it didn't have the opportunity to become chametz is used in two of those things. But one, why were they eating matzah? Was it because Hashem commanded or just that's the only thing they had available because it didn't, it didn't have the opportunity to become chametz? And there's a separate question, which is how did they have the matzah to begin with? Like what happened? Did they go out of their way to ensure that it was matzah? Or 
It was something just happened and it didn't become didn't become chametz. So consequently, it was matzah. Like, where's the discrepancy though? The Torah commanded them and also commands us to eat matzah before they were redeemed, but it also describes us as eating matzah to commemorate the fact that the dough didn't have the opportunity to rise because Hashem had. When did He command them? He commanded them on the tenth of Nisan. Mm-hmm. It was a Shabbos. Was it about eating then or after? It was about get a sheep, you're going to eat some matzah, and then you're going out of Egypt. Oh, okay. Get your walking stick, gird your loins, put up your sandals. You know, everyone was like in their travel clothes at the Seder. Why are we questioning when they ate the matzah? They're not questioning. It was inconsistent. The mit- the- we make a big deal. We eat matzah because our ancestors ate matzah. When exactly did our ancestors eat matzah? Why can't it be this time and that? It could be this time and that time, but then you have to explain, like, why, why are you describing it in two different ways? So we're talking about two different ideas of matzah. I believe you discovered the source of the idea that there are actually two distinct ideas of... Very good. Because if matzah represents bittel, we have matzah that's being described as being eaten before Hashem has revealed himself. And matzah that's being described as after the Jews have been redeemed. Matzah that the Jews were commanded to eat. Matzah that the Jews ate because they had nothing else to eat. Matzah that they have to make sure is matzah and not chametz versus matzah which didn't have the opportunity to become chametz. Clearly those are two different kinds of matzah. Therefore two different kinds of bittel. Okay, last. Um, In Hebrew, there are certain letters that do not need to be written into words. These are letters that symbolize vowels. So a vav or a yud could be missing from how a word is spelled. This is called male or chaser, full or missing. <clears throat> so the Hebrew word for matzahs in the plural is matzais or matzoit or matzot or matoth or any other number of ways of pronouncing it. My personal favorite is masoth. Yeah. Masoth. Masoth. You don't eat masoth? <laughs> so it's a certain Yemenite kind of pronunciation as far as my imitation goes. I'm trying my best. They have a sadi and a thof. And a thof. So it's masoth. 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 Or you can just, you know, say matzis. <laughs> you know, like Matzot. <laughs> no. There is a Hebrew letter called a tough. When it has a dot in it, it takes a hard sound. When it, takes a, when it doesn't have a, a dot in it, it should take a soft sound. And there's variations on how to actually pronounce it because of that. So modern Hebrew, they just drop the soft sound um, amongst Yemenites and other groups, the, sound, the soft sound is a soft TH. Amongst Ashkenazim, it's generally more of an S sound. There you go. Hence, Shabbos, Sabbath. Where do you think the th came from in Sabbath? Yeah. If you know how the word used to have been pronounced way back in Old French, it would probably make sense. It's often when weird spelling exists in the language, so you have to know how the word used to be pronounced. Because once, once a word is written down... Beth Jacob. All, most of those generally have a suff in them. That's where they come from. Anyway, I don't speak French. Okay. So... In, when Hashem commanded the Jewish people in the desert to eat matzah, he wrote it, he wrote it in the Torah without the vav, symbolizing the vowel cholam or choylam. So it's written mem tzadik saf, missing a vav. You all know what a vav looks like, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, however, when it describes the fact that the dough did not have the opportunity to rise and so forth for the matzahs, there it's written with a vav. So we now have a fourth difference between the two kinds of matzah. When the word matzah is written regarding the commandment of the people to eat it before they were redeemed and they have to protect it to make sure it does not become chametz, the word matzah is written missing the letter vav. Whereas when it's describing the fact that they ate the matzah because there was no opportunity for the dough to rise because Hashem had redeemed them, the word matzah is written with a vav. Okay? How would the the Same way, because the vav just represents the vowel. So anytime the letter represents a vowel, it could be dropped in the writing. 
That's one of the things that can invalidate a Sefer Torah, is if you put a Vav or a Yud that represents a vowel when, doesn't, when it's not supposed to be there, or vice versa. Well, the first one spelled without and the second one? Right, right. Before redemption is Without a Vav. Okay. So what is a... We're going to start with this. What does a Vav represent? Okay, so Matzah represents Bittel, right? Or specifically, energizing the soul's ability to have Bittel. What does a Vav represent? So a Vav is a line that starts at the top and works its way down. Um, And so a Vav represents the idea of godliness being drawn down. Also, grammatically, what does a Vav do when you place it at the beginning of a word? It connects, right? The idea of the Vav is about drawing out, revealing, making Hashem's presence felt in reality. So that tells us that there are two kinds of matzah, there's two kinds of bittel. There's a bittel which is missing the presence of Hashem, the presence of Hashem is lacking, so it's matzah without the vav. And then there is a, a bittel, a matzah, with the vav, together with the presence of Hashem. So there's a way we can be bottled to Hashem where His presence is not felt, and there's a way we're bottled to Hashem where His presence is felt. Now let's just run through this very quickly. So, when did Hashem reveal himself? At midnight. At midnight. So the matzah before midnight was with? The matzah after midnight is? With above. That makes sense. When Hashem's presence is revealed, do we need to do something to make sure that there's bittal, or does the bittal happen automatically? It's automatic. It's going to be automatic. So there's no need to command the eating of matzah, and there's need, need to ensure that the dough doesn't rise. On the other hand, if Hashem's presence is not revealed, then the bittel is not automatic. It needs to be commanded, and also we need to ensure that the chametz does not develop. So there's these two different kinds of bittel. There's a bittel which is a response to the revelation of Hashem, and there's a bittel which we are commanded to do through our own efforts. And those are these two different kinds of matzah. So again, matzah is bittal. Matzah without a vav means there's no revelation of Hashem. Matzah with a vav means there is a revelation of Hashem. Hashem revealed himself at midnight and yet he commanded them to eat matzah <coughs> before midnight. So there's a bittal that we have to be commanded to, to have. We have to work hard to ensure that it does not become the opposite of bittal, the chametz. And that is lacking the presence of Hashem. And then afterwards, Hashem's presence is revealed. Matzah after midnight, matzah with the vav. And at that point, the bittel is automatic. There's no need to command the bittel. There's no need to ensure that the dough does not rise and become chametz. So now what we need to do is we need to develop what is this idea of bittel without Hashem's presence and bittel with Hashem's presence. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on a very specific aspect of Bittal for the first part of that explanation. Um, and when we finish that, if we have time, I will go back that, to the idea of the small child and the Imuna Pshuta and the simple faith and that kind of thing and talk about that if we have time. That's an incentive to keep us on track or possibly a disincentive depending on your particular view. All right, so we're going to talk about something called yira. Yira is usually translated as fear, okay? So I'm going to just translate it as fear. So I'm going to say yira, I'm going to say fear, I'm going to say them interchangeably, and you're just going to deal with it, okay? Now, yira is an example of bittal. Okay, that's what we're going to say. Is that Yira is, is Yira, is, are Yira and Bittal synonyms? Let's add, start there. Is Yira and, are Yira and Bittal synonyms? No. Yira is an example of Bittal, but not all Bittal is Yira. So if I see something that I would call fear, but it is not an example of Bittal, would that be what we're referring to here as Yira? No. Okay. So if you are 
not going to sin because Hashem will punish you if you sin. Is that an example of Bittal? No. That is not an example of Bittal. Why not? Right. You're engaging in an act of self-preservation, probably quite wisely. Right? There is no Bittal, right? There is no... It, 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 it is all about your own existence and your own experience and your own well-being. It happens to be the case that there is a threat to your well-being, i.e. God. And the way to avoid that threat, i.e. God, is to not make him angry. By the way, does that make one closer to God? No. No, okay. Now, I would like to point something out. That there is still bittel, but the in such a thing. But the bittel is not in your attitude, it's in the mitzvah. So every mitzvah, this is like a parenthetical point, but an important point. Every mitzvah is bittel, regardless of your intent. If the mitzvah is done according to Allah, the act, whether it is a physical act or a or a verbal act or a mental act in the case of mental mitzvahs, the fact that you did the mitzvah is an act of bittel. Okay? The question is whether the person, their relation to that act is also bittel. So, overly simplistic, I go out with some friends. I do have them, by the way. I go out for some friends and I order myself some coffee and someone gives me the coffee. Is, is that an act of bittal? What? I went out with friends and ordered coffee and the person brought me coffee. Well, the act itself. No, you didn't. Not, not me. I'm, oh, I'm not. The fact that they brought me coffee. You paid them. It's a service. Okay, the significance of them bringing me coffee is what? Now I have coffee. So that act, detached from the person doing it, right, is for me to have coffee. Now, why did they do it? They want their paycheck. They have no interest in me. And their boss is willing to give them a paycheck if they bring me coffee. Why is the boss willing to give them a paycheck if they bring me coffee? Because I'm giving their boss more money than the coffee's worth. Right? And so the boss is like, well, if I keep a little bit of that, and plus I pay for the provide the coffee, I'll pay someone to keep provide the person the coffee, and then I get to make extra money, right? So nobody in their person is bottled to me, but the act of bringing me coffee is what? It's about meeting my desire for coffee, right? Similarly, if I put on tefillin out of habit because I'm afraid of going to Gehenim um, in order to impress somebody, whatever the case might be, does that detract from the, from the bittle of the act of putting on tefillin? No. No. But, does, the, the, but, the, but we're in this class talking about the person, not the act. And if I'm being for any of those things, my relationship with the act is not a relationship uh, have in, involving any bittle to Hashem. Okay? So I just want to be clear about that. We never want to say, even though bittle is such an important thing, that somehow the bittle that we are feeling in our relationship to Hashem has any bearing on the bittle in the mitzvah itself. As I said yesterday, you don't need to do anything to make the mitzvahs meaningful. The meaning of the mitzvahs comes from Hashem. Hashem. Good? Okay. So, well, if, 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 if now one of the meanings of bittal <coughs> is negate. And that's an important thing, that if there's going to be bittal, we have to be negating something. So yesterday we spoke about negating the, the expansiveness, the taste of things, right? But we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're going to find a, a different avenue to explain that. Yesterday we spoke about the idea of understanding and loving. One of the things that people have is called a will, a Hebrew a ratzon. And it's important to understand what a ratzon is, what a will is, before we go around negating it. Okay? What is a will? I have a pen. What is a pen? An object that It's a writing implement. Good. I have an eye. What is an eye? It's an object. It's a seeing implement. It's a seeing implement. I have a power of vision. What's that? 
It's also a seeing implement. This is a physical implement of sight. And the power of vision is a, we'll call it for lack of words, a spiritual power of vision, right? Now, if you only have the power of vision and no eyeballs, well, in the physical world, you won't be able to see. If you only have eyeballs with no power of vision, right? Actual seeing involves the, the spiritual implement of sight, i.e. the power of vision, and the physical implement of sight, i.e. the eyeball working <coughs> in conjunction with each other, okay? I have a brain. I have an intellect. Same idea, okay? So these are implements of things, right? What is will? No, that I have a power of action. It's not the same thing as the power of will. So like the spiritual drive to do something or make something happen. Okay, generalize it. The spiritual drive for what? Oh, for something to be done. Well, it doesn't have to be done. I could... To happen. What kinds of things to happen? This one is very tricky. Will is very tricky, okay? Will is the drive that things should fit me. Which is why will always requires a secondary thing to implement it. Usually, the most obvious one is the power of action. The power of action is to make things be a certain way. But will is the drive that they should be in a particular way. Which way? My way. My way. That's, it's the power, it's the implement to drive you to having things being your way. What happens if you have no will? There's <coughs> a general rule in life. And you're okay with things not being your way? You have no will. Yeah, uh, what happens if you have no will? What happens if there's an absence of will? Nothing. Nothing. That's right. You atrophy, right? You wither. You, you, you cease. Yeah. There's a disease called failure to thrive. Does anyone know what failure to thrive is? What? It does exist. It, it, yeah, it occurs in infants. What is it? He'll grow. No will. Basically, when an infant is not cared for, the will to actually like perpetuate their own existence stops and yep it turns out you cannot just provide an infant with sufficient food and air you actually need to show them that they're, they are welcome in the world otherwise yep why do so many infants grow up in homes where they're not welcome and they still... Grow? Well, you only need apparently a bare minimum. <laughs> like some, some, uh, the occasional physical contact and touch. The, the reason why this is extremely important, um, aside from the fact that nobody should be so stupid as to raise an infant without like, doing that, is that sometimes for medical reasons, an infant has to be isolated um, in certain medical conditions. That becomes a very important thing of how to give the infant the kind of contact and warmth and that's needed. I'm not a medical professional, but... Yeah. No, it, the, just the, even, even the, uh, the smallest amount of holding and, and, and caressing and, and, you know, can, has, you know, you don't need to, doesn't need to be like the warm ideal environment for a human being to thrive, for just to have something. But anyway, that's, so will, okay? get the will. And so will is really the, 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 play, the, the, the ability to manifest our self. No will, no sense of self. Sense of self means a will. So while your will is not yourself, think about the will as the sunlight and yourself as the sun. If the sunlight isn't reaching a place, that's because the sun has been... The sun has been diminished, the sun goes out. Blocked. It's been blocked. Right? Good? Okay. You have to ask people why they say what they say. You should know me by now that I have a lot of criticism about what people do, right? Oh, see different things? It's not the topic of the class. We're never going to get to simple faith if we get to sidetracked. We have to be buttled to the goal. All right. Good? So we have a, some, some at least modicum of a sense of what we mean by will. Okay. Yira... Is bittel. 
What is it? What is it? Mevatel. What is it negating? What is it nullifying? Self. Self. What does that mean specifically? Are we putting out the sun? No. You're, you're negating the will, right? So now, but remember what yesterday I said about the absence of something is not really bittel. A lack of will is not yira. What is yira? It's something which negates the will. So I can't simply say a lack of will is the same thing as yira. So for instance, God, this is why I brought this example. A, a infant, God forbid, suffering from failure to thrive, is that an example of yira? No, right? Whatever, there's certain conditions needed for the natural human will to thrive and survive to be manifest, and <coughs> those conditions aren't being met, and so there's a lacking, there's a failure of, right? Yira is some other kind of dimension, some other kind of substantive thing, which when it enters into the psyche of the person, the effect is what does it do to the rotsan, to the will? It negates it. Okay? That's what yira is. Now I don't know, but I'm using this as a kind of like, what is yira, and the, and why we're calling yira bittel because the presence of yira has what effect on the will? It it well it negates it in some way, okay? And that negating right because will is the sense of ourself, right? The sense of right things should be my way. If we have yira, then we no longer have a sense of. Yeah, the sense that things should be my way, right? Okay. So now, there are two kinds of yira. How many kinds of yira are there? They're cleverly named, by the way. One is called yira tata, which means the lower yira, the lower fear. And one is called yira ila, which I'm going to let you translate that one. Higher fear. Higher fear. Aren't they cleverly named? Okay. Yiratata, lower fear. I can't spell. Tough, tough. Uh, Aleph, hey? Probably something like that. Ila. Ayin. Yud, Lamed. Yud, Aleph, hey? Probably something like that. I don't know. I can't spell. Okay. Yeah? Everybody has their limitations, right? To break free of our limitations. Maybe I'll come back after Pesach being perfectly able to spell. Okay. Maybe I should put that in my junk box. <laughs> my wife will see me over Cholomite, like reading the dictionary. Like, what are you doing? I'm trying to get out of my personal Egypt and learn how to spell. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, so Yira would is Yira. It would be the idea of bittul ratzon, and we actually see this in the Mishnah. The Mishnah says bittul ratzoncha. Your your will should be negated. That's the idea of Yira. But there actually, if there are two kinds of Yira, that means there's two kinds of negating your will. Okay. So I'm going to use a, an analogy which I think is very easy to relate to, even though it's not hundred percent accurate. But I I'm willing to sacrifice accuracy for relatability, and then move from there to accuracy. Okay, especially since we're dealing with something as sensitive as negating oneself, which are always supposed to say that no, we don't really mean negating yourself, but no, no, we really mean here <laughs> negating yourself, because right. yeah. your will is the manifestation of your. So, okay. Very helpful when people do that. Well, sometimes, well, sometimes in we don't really mean that. Like the problem with bittul, I have a friend who says that if Hasidus were taught as a university subject, it would be called bittulology, the study of the different kinds and forms of bittul. So. So sometimes, like, so bittul means being in sync with your true self. I mean, that's not wrong. It's just, that's not what we mean in this context. Like, in a broad sense, everything holy has an aspect of bittul. So even though yesterday I said how love is not bittul, that's only when you're contrasting it to a purer form of bittul. But if you broaden out your sense, right, the fact that you feel incomplete unless someone else is a genuine part of your life is a kind of bittul. The need for complexity and nuance. It's so frustrating. Okay, so let us imagine, God forbid, that you have a neighbor who has lost a loved one rather tragically. And let us also imagine that you are like regular middle-class people. You have a busy life and not enough time to do all the things you need to do in a day. Okay, in other words, you know, you're not in seminary. 
right? Work, groceries, kids. You know, not, people just don't have enough time to get all the stuff done. But your neighbor tragically lost a loved one and they're sitting shiva. So, on the one hand, you have your life and its many important obligations. On the other hand, your neighbor just tragically lost their child, spouse, whatever, right? Do you feel the conflict? Yes? Okay. You have three options. Option number one is, well, sorry, four options. Option number one is you go along your life and do your thing and your neighbor's problems are their problems and you don't feel bad about it. But I think we all realize that that's just being a bad person, right? Okay. Option number two is you go about doing your, living your life and you don't go make a shiva call and you feel bad about it because you know you should have, but I mean, you know, it's not bad. You know, it's like it eats away at you a little bit, but not enough to actually get you to go make the shiva call. I'm taking for granted everyone knows what a shiva call is. I'm not sure. I, I, everyone knows what a shiva call is? Yes? Okay. Fine. Unfortunately, right? Better not to know these things. Um, option three is you could go to the shiva call and resent having to go. Right? And option four is you could go because you're able to appreciate that you paying this shiva call is more important than meeting all of your mundane bourgeoisie needs that you have. You know, just like, it's okay to miss soccer practice or like, you know, to like, maybe like throw something from the freezer in for dinner rather than going shopping or whatever the case might be in order to make the shiva call. Right? It's just, it really is their sitting shiva is more important than your packed schedule. It just really is. And so you can set aside what you want and do the right thing. Yeah? So that, now, what I like to point out, in the first two options, you didn't even do, you didn't even go to the shiva call, right? In the second two options, you did it. So the doing was, was important. But we're not talking about doing, we're talking about your will, right? If you go to the shiva call and you're resenting going to the shiva call, is there any bittle on your rutzen, on your will? But if you can say, look, I, I clearly would rather not go to a shiva call. Like I have a busy life, I have things, right? But I can set that aside because I recognize that meeting, going to the shiva call is just more important than what I need. Then what's that? That is a bittle of your ratsan. Does that mean the ratsan doesn't exist anymore? Or it means that you're able to set it aside? Which one? You're able to set it aside, okay? So you're able to put something on hold because what's going on with someone else is more important. Good? So in that sense, we would say you are experiencing a kind of yira, which usually gets translated as fear. Sometimes when people want to sound like safe and secure, we don't want to feel threatening, we call it awe. I don't know if fear or awe, either really good translations, but that would be yira. Why is that fear? Why is it just not bitzel, a different kind of bitzel? So Chassidus understands that Yira, when Yira is in essence, is this idea of Bittul Haratzon. Because think about it like this. I'm going to give like a very, like a different example altogether, like a very, a very crass example. Okay? You ever, like we're in a social setting where there's someone who just feels like entitled that everything should go their way? <coughs> So their wills, like they're really out there, like what I want is what matters, and there's an expectation that what they want should happen, and everyone else should follow their will, right? It's like just over the top, yeah? Okay. Now, I don't know if you've ever happened to you in real life, or you've seen it in a movie, or read it in a book, or you can just imagine it, but imagine you've got somebody who's like got that kind of like, that, that just sense of just raw arrogance that it, it's my way, and everybody should be doing my thing, right? And that how they feel, right? And that's, there, there, there's that kind of expansiveness. Now imagine they feel under a genuine threat. Somebody, somebody, I don't know, threatens them in a, in, a, in a real way. Like they're really in danger, financial danger, physical danger, whatever it is, yeah? What happens at that point? They What? They melt into a puddle, right? If they really feel like there's a... Like a in other words, not there's something I need to deal with. And there's a difference. Like, oh, there's this obstacle I need to deal with. No, no, no. They feel intimidated. They feel afraid. What happens to all their will? All their, right? Melts, right? Okay. Now, that's a very crass example. But from that, we can understand that 
Fear in its essence is a kind of an experience which does what to your sense of will? It dissipates it. It dissipates it. Now, the thing is, in that case, it's, it's not really dissipating the will entirely. <coughs> it's just dissipating all the more superficial will and revealing that all that's left is a will for personal safety, whether physical safety, financial safety, whatever the case might be, right? But where Chassidus <coughs> takes this, okay, but what if we talked about, and therefore we can say that's not a true example. If, 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 if fear is a recognition of something else that negates your will, then that's not a true example of fear. That's just a, a, a mock fear, an imitation fear. A real fear is something that actually gets you to lose your will mm-hmm. in a genuine way. In that case, um, you run into an issue that now we're using fear or in a, in a way that doesn't fit people's intuitive senses of fear because we're, we're very crass and so we only think of it that way. So what Chassidus speaks about fear in this sense, it's how can I just go on living my everyday, regular, middle-class life and completely ignore this person's suffering? Like you can't. And when you feel the significance of, of, what, of what they're going through, what they need, what you want has become irrelevant. And that, what I say, is a true example of Yira. Whereas, the, the, whereas something that causes you to be less um, into your own desires because you feel threatened is only just reducing your kind of the ex- superficial forms of of your desire, of your will, and revealing the thing that you fundamentally have a will for, which is your personal safety. Okay. And how is that not still like, like you want, you still want to go on some level? No, that's the thing is you don't want to go. You don't want to go. If someone were to give you a magic wand and say, option A is you can go to the Shiva call and you're, and not go on to your life, or option B is you cannot go to the Shiva call because not because you're going to call because they don't need to go. Like, just like, the problem doesn't, doesn't need you. Right. Like, which would you prefer? That you, in other words, well, the, idea is that the, the idea is that you're setting aside your will. The will hasn't disappeared. Right. If you, in other words, I will not, I will not, um, I, this problem is using two negatives, annoying. But it really is like that. It's not a positive. I will not not go to the shiva call because of what I want. But if the shiva call doesn't need me, I'm not going. I have no interest in being there. Okay. Now I'm using this example very specifically because it's going to help us understand the two types of euro. Even though I get this example is not the best example. Okay. Okay. Now. Remember, this is an example where your neighbor has lost someone close to them, spouse, child, whatever the case, tragically. Okay? Now, you walk into Shivakal and you sit down. And just to really accentuate it, it's, you, you came in at an inopportune time, so you're not like one of the many faceless people that blends into the crowd. It's just like it's just you. Yeah. You walk in. You thought there'd be other people, and they're just sitting there, and it's them. And they're putting on their best presentation of like trying to, because you know, it's like a lot of work to, to receive people sugar call. And you sit down and they're sitting there in the low chair. And they, what do you want to say at that point? Get me out of here. No. What do you want to tell them? Nothing. Nothing. At that point, if you're, anybody, at that point, your awareness of the extent and depth of what you're facing of, it's not you're willing to set your will aside. Like the very notion of having a will is melted away. So there's negating your will by setting the will aside. And then there's... Actually, it's getting bigger and it's gone. Like, you don't have a will at all. At that point, there's this sense that, like, how could you have a... How could you, how could you like, put yourself into this? It's not about you in any way, shape, or form. Um, someone told me a good analogy for this. I think it's a great analogy. Um... What do you say if somebody says, I have something fundamentally difficult and unrelatable, such as a woman says, I'm infertile, or um, I've lost a child, or anything like that, and you have not? I understand your pain. I empathize. Like, what, what exactly is the appropriate response? To acknowledge that you have no appropriate response. Like, you have no way, you like, 
You have no handle on what that is. And so there's a kind of an inner silence that needs to be there. That's it. And in that state, can you have a will? Can you, have, can you, can you shine your own light? Okay. So there's two kinds of negating the will. There's negating the will where you set your will aside. And there's negating the will where your very capacity to have a will has been supplanted by the gravity, by the seriousness of what's happening with this other person. Which one motivates you towards action? Which of the two types of negating your will? Any action. Well, the first one. The first one, because it got you to like change your schedule and go drive to the person's house, right? The second one. You just stand, you're still more it, Yeah, it's, it's actually paralyzing. Okay? Is that difference? Okay. Now, the reason why this is not accurate is because I'm doing with the seriousness of tragedy to illustrate the point because it's more relatable. But with Hashem, it's not like the tragedy of God, you understand? It's not what it is. Because Hasidus is, in, I'm going to give you the answer according to you. Hasidus is interested in changing the plane in which we live on. Hasidus wants us to see reality differently. And so one of the things that Hasidus is cleverly trying to do is to change our vocabulary. And that real anything is much more profound and much more holy and much more rich, much more spiritual. And the more prosaic way everybody uses words is just a crass, shallow imitation of those things. And so when you start really absorbing that, you, you actually live differently. You don't really see somebody running away from a, from a guy with a gun. I was, oh, that's not... That's not real hero. He's just like, he's just like engaged in act of self-preservation. That's not, there's nothing, there's nothing. Whereas when you see somebody who, who cannot bring themselves to violate a principle because it's wrong, like that the person is, is gripped with a real fear. It's changing, it's, 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 it's deepening, and it's not really a word, but I can use it anyway, spiritualizing our framework for understanding reality. And that's, critical in, in, in becoming a vessel to actually see Hashem's presence in our lives in a, in a real way. Um, and what that does, though, is it creates this very big frustration because it turns out Hasidus is subtly corrupting our language. So fear as we know it's not really Yira. Fear as we know it is a crass, shallow imitation of certain characteristics which are similar to Yira. But, 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 but the thing is, but the thing is, but the thing is, the thing is, when you say it that way, you make it sound like it's a translation issue and it's not, it's a language issue. So I'm gonna say it again in English. Fear, as we understand it, is a crass, shallow imitation of what fear really is. Why? Fear that you're, like that with your example, someone running away for their life. It's just something going on there, like a lot of their fight, like, and it's, it's just a very, it's not really, um, it's like a scientific thing. Right? That's already another thing. But right. that's what fear is. And no, then fear no, 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 no. No, now, now, we don't have time to go into this. There are different ways of, 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 of framing reality. If you are describing something, you want to be very, very clear what's the frame of reference. Are you describing something as a biological phenomena or a psychological phenomena? I don't mean to say that one is right and one is wrong, but when you mix the two, it's actually incredibly confusing. So you do some therapy work. If you were to tell me, like I'm pretending I'm a patient, and you were to tell me, that when I am feeling fear, all that is happening is that the neurons in my amygdala are firing at a higher rate than normal. Well, yeah. Is that, is, I'm not saying that that is not a correct description of the biology. How, as an experiential person, would I take that? You look at me as though I don't have a heart. Exactly. On the other hand, if you were to tell me that, oh, brain chemistry is completely irrelevant to what you think and feel and how you experience the world, then I would look at you. Because you're dumb. Right. So we need to now figure out, 
are we addressing the biological component that you need to be well versed in the biology? Are we addressing the experiential component on a social level that we need to relate to it that is, way? Is Yira a mix of all those though? So, 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 so that's just talking on the level you were talking about. So, but now if we're talking about Hasidus, what Hasidus is trying to do is think something else. Is that language that we use to describe the world experientially is crass. It's self-centered. We, we understand everything in an ungodly way. And so the problem is not the information that we have, it's how we conceptualize anything at all, how, right? One of the interesting, like, like one of the things that really annoys people about Hasidus is that Hasidus is not very clear. Yeah. It's intentionally that way. <clears throat> There's something called being subversive. Subversive is like when you get into something and it looks like you're doing one thing, but you're really doing something else. One of the things that Hasidus is doing is perverting the use of language to change it that the way you use language and therefore the way you conceptualize things is actually more aligned with a godly perspective. So that, you know, like if you see a doll and you see an arm on a doll, you, you intuitively relate to that as just a representation. You don't think of that as a genuine arm, right? right. Well, Hasidus wants that when you see somebody running down the street because there's like a a guy chasing them with a gun, you think of that as well. That, well, that's just like a, that's just like a crass representation of Yira. That's not like real Yira. Real Yira is what happens when you recognize something more significant than yourself, beyond yourself, higher than yourself, more important than yourself, or in the case that I brought, more tragic than what's going on with yourself. It's something beyond you, though. That's right. It's that beyondness, and that sense of the beyondness negates your ability to radiate your own will, your own self into things. Now, that can be through setting your will aside, that's called yiratata, and that can be through just the very capacity to have a will melting away. That would be the example of yirilah. And so the idea is, when we are faced with the greatness of Hashem, not the greatness sense of like he's comparatively so great, he's so wise, he's so smart, but the, 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 the inherent significance of his being. He is true. He is real and nothing else is. When faced with that, what happens to your will? Well, it's really not so important, is it? So if you are faced with it conceptually, you've come to recognize that he is true and he is real, and we're not really so in comparison, then we can set our will aside for him. And that's the idea of making sure that the matzah is not chametz, obeying his commands, serving God. On the other hand, if the absolute significance of his being is shining you in the, shining at you in the face, it's right there in front of you, then... Yeah, it's then it's like you, right, you, then you're just like completely your whole sense of self just dissolves away, and that's called yira ilah. The analogy that's brought for this is the difference between a servant who is out of the palace serving the king. The servant is setting aside their own will, their own agenda, their own life, like a soldier on the battlefield for the will of the king, and that comes through their recognition. Whereas if they're standing in the presence of the king. They feel unable to even have, not even to voice an opinion, but even have an opinion in their own mind. Now, the reason I didn't use that analogy to start out with is when was the last time we've actually related to a real sovereign monarch? Never, so it's a little unrelatable, so I started with something that's more relatable. So what would be Yeratata? Where we recognize that Hashem is more real than we are. If he's more real than we are, then whose will should be acted upon? His will or our will? His will. So we've setting aside our will for his will. So the recognition that he is truer than us, he is more real than us, that's the year, that's the bittle of year tata. But when when he shows us that, when that becomes something that is actually experienced firsthand, then it's not we set our will aside for him. What happens at that point? No. Person has no will at all. They feel like they have no will. They, they, they kind of melt away in that awareness. So you don't see the first one in Hashem's presence it's not in your face. Right. You're just aware that it's there. Right. Right. The same way you, the same way like a soldier is aware that there's a mission. There's aware that there's a king. There's an aware there's a significance to what they're being asked to do. And they can use that awareness to set aside their personal will for the sake of 
So that's the difference between these two kinds of matzah. There's a matzah which is fortifying our ability to serve God out of bittel. And then there's a matzah that comes afterwards, which is fortifying our ability to be aware of his presence in, in the moment, in the here and now. Um, when were the Jews imprisoned? When were the Jews in Egypt? Yes, they were up. They were, they were really physically they left later, but when were they spiritually imprisoned, spiritually enslaved, up to the point where? No. Hashem's revelation. <coughs> At that point, they were redeemed. So, what does that mean? Spiritually. What's the prison? What's Egypt? What's the thing that holds us back? Connection. No. The. No, that, that, that's the thing that redeems us. What's the thing that holds us? What, what, what are we being redeemed from? Well, they ate matzah before Hashem revealed himself and afterwards, right? And in both cases, matzah is negating the will, but there's a difference. When you eat matzah before Hashem revealed himself, what does negating the will mean? It means setting my will aside. But once Hashem's revealed, what does negating the will mean? It means it's just there's, there is no will. So what's the thing that we're being redeemed from? Our own will. Oh my gosh. That's the thing we're being redeemed from. And if you want to be redeemed from your own will, you have to be willing <laughs> to do that. And how do you show that you're willing to do that? Setting by setting. So by setting your will aside, right? Eating the matzah that's commanded and making sure it doesn't become chametz, right? You are making the vessel, the place in yourself for Hashem to show Himself, and then you are freed from your own will. Because we tend to think of our will as freedom, but actually our will is it's slavery. Because our will, what does our will do? With all of its advantages, what does our will do? Our will is limited, so it limits us. But if our will is being set aside or being dissolved because of Hashem, so it's not an absence of will, it's, right, it's, that the, the infinity, the unlimitedness of Hashem is substituting, replacing us. And so we become freed from the limitations of our own will. And so eating matzah has both elements. Eating matzah is enabling us and fortifying us to set our will aside because Hashem is more real and more true than us. And that makes us a vessel, makes us capable of receiving the revelation that truly frees us from our will by taking us out of the state of even being able to have our own will because we are face to face with something much truer than ourselves. And if you would like to put this back in the analogy of a person and another person, any instance of real intimacy, and I don't necessarily mean intimacy in, in, the, in the sense of like men, women, that kind of thing. I mean intimacy in the sense of real vulnerability between one person and another. What is, and what this means that if somebody is really showing the true depths of what's going on inside of them, you, the only way you are receptive to that is if you're not putting yourself into that. The prerequisite for not putting yourself into that is that even though you have your own will, you can set it aside for them. And so if you think about it in a way, our own will keeps us imprisoned in a very basic sense, not just putting us on. It imprisons us, we become very isolated. Like there's this myth that if I can do what I want, I will be free. If I just do what is important to me, then I become isolated. I become a, a, I become a citizen of a country which has only one person in it, myself. And that is extremely isolated and lonely. When a person can set their will aside for someone else, that creates the space for that other person to show whatever is true and deep for them. And you hopefully can receive that in a way of not putting yourself into that. And that's what actually creates true bonds. And so that is the same idea of eating matzah before the exodus, after the exodus. Now, once you take this idea, these building blocks, chassidus, starts playing with them and, and starts making like all sorts of complex combinations of different kinds and levels of matzah, but we're going to just leave it at the simple two. With, with this intimacy example, you put yourself aside and then when you are face-to-face with that person, it, the same thing happens, it melts away. That's right. 
But if you don't put yourself the aside, there has right. To be. Okay. Okay. Now, what does this finding do with simple faith? The putting aside is a simple. Simple faith is not that I don't have a reason. Simple faith is I don't need a reason. Why don't you need a reason? Why? Why? Because you're face to face. Either because, well, one of these two things. Either you're face to face with the truth, or even if you're not face to face with the truth, you recognize that it's true. And, rec- and, you rec- and part of recognizing it's truth, it doesn't become more true just because you have more evidence. More evidence, more of a reason. Right. And that's the thing that the little child, the toddler, has an intuitive sense of. In other words, simple faith is not the way to compensate for a lack of reason. Any more than, say, taste is a way to compensate for a lack of vision, or vision is a way to compensate for lack of taste. They're just two different things. Simple faith is also bittal, because what is it? It's, I don't need the reasoning. Having the reason will not make me feel a stronger bond. Having a question will not make me feel a weaker bond. Why? That's right. And you can just know because it's, you know from your gut, like the child, or you can know because it's in your face. So we have that, so that's the idea. Bittal can be understood as a muna. Muna pshut, a simple faith. It can also be understood as Yira. They're both examples of Bittal. And really to leave Egypt, we need you know, the Bittal of Yira, we need the Bittal of Amunda, and so that's Matzah. Okay? So it, the key takeaway I want you to understand is that Bittal, even though it's negation, it's something is negating. What is negating your will? The recognition of the importance of the other. What is negating your need to have a reason? Your sense that this is true. And what you'll notice is that those things, so they're negating something, but they're also tapping into it the way it is. Just like we said, that matzah is just the dough as is, without the enhancements of taste and expansion and everything else. And yeah, there's a process. One matzah, another matzah. So you, a person could never achieve the higher level of here on his own. Right. Right. That's actually why it's called the higher fear. It's not called the higher fear because it's more important. It's not called the higher fear because it's a higher level. It's because it has to come from above. It's, right? The Chassidus discusses how the lower fear, in a certain sense, has, is deeper and more precious than the higher fear. Now, you're choosing to set yourself aside because someone else is important has a certain depth to it that the experience of being receptive to their intimate vulnerability just doesn't have, even though it's a much richer experience. So the, the real deeper reason why it's called upper and lower is because of where does it come from? Is it, is it something that comes through us or something that comes from God? The upper fear, Hashem has to reveal himself to you for you to experience that. The lower fear is something that you, you can do through recognizing the truth using your own abilities. But if it's nothing that we could work on or try it's nothing you can, it's nothing you can, no, I didn't say, it's not that, well, because you cannot receive that kind, you cannot have that kind of experience without first having the, revelation. Right. No, the revelation, without having the lower fear. Okay. Right. No, but, but like, why are we, why are we fortifying that if that's just the automatic result? Well, the, the way Hashem brings that to us is through the mitzvah of matzah. That's his revelation. Right. The matzah becomes the medium both through which we become strengthened in our ability to set ourselves aside for Hashem and also our soul's ability and also the way Hashem reveals himself to our souls. There's a separate question of how sensitive we are to our souls, which is another issue. Some of us are less sensitive than we should be, maybe. Okay, tomorrow we will move on from matzah because there's other things to do with Pesach. There's four cups of wine, there's matzah, there's charesis, you know, there's... Someone asked about maybe doing some Sphere Omer things. So we have three more classes, right? Tomorrow and then Monday and Tuesday, yes? So we'll do some other non-matzah topics. Um, but there's a lot more about matzah. Um, I will just leave you with one little piece of information. 
the matzah that we are eating at the Seder night, we mention it in having both contexts. On the one hand, it's a mitzvah, but we're saying it commemorates the matzah that didn't have time to rise. So I didn't elaborate on this, but somehow the matzah that we're eating is the idea that these two ideas are fused together into one cohesive thing. Um, and I'll just point out, there's a nice little allusion to this. The word chametz and matzah have the same letters with the exception of the ches and the hay. Matzah is a mem, a tzaddik, and a hay. Chametz, in a different order, is also a mem, a tzaddik, but a ches. A ches and a hay look exactly the same, with the exception of that a hay has a little opening representing the bittle. How do you spell the letter hay? In Hebrew, hays. with a hay, two hays, hey, hey. You write it, hey. the way you spell out the letter hay, like is hay, letter hay. Which means every hay really contains two hays. That really, even the lower bittle contains within it some aspect, some potential for the higher bittle that the lower fear and somehow is not such a separate thing from the higher fear. I'm not going to elaborate on what that means or what that represents, but just to leave you that there's more, more complexities in this issue. I present as two distinct things, two distinct stages, and that's how it was when they left Egypt originally, right? They first ate the matzah as a mitzvah, then the matzah was because Hashem was revealing himself. But when we have the Seder, we actually speak about the same matzah having both qualities. So somehow there's a way these things are fused, incorporate each other in some way, which is a topic for some other time. Yeah. All right.